0: This week on the ESG Agenda, we hear from Betsy Atkins, board member, three-time CEO, serial entrepreneur, and investor in early-stage technology, energy, and healthcare companies. As a board member of U.S. and European companies, Betsy points out that Europe's governance structures can be less supportive of shareholders than those of U.S. companies. She cautions that ESG will be the Trojan horse into the boardroom for shareholder activists, and despite the noise and complexity, she encourages boards to just get started on ESG
1: these things you're doing it's just a matter of capture them communicate them pick a framework any framework just start
0: Betsy welcome to the podcast
1: delighted to be with you Amelia
0: how have you seen ESG evolve in uh, boardroom perceptions over time
1: You know, it's it's such a good question because years ago, you heard the phrase CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, that FTSE 100 UK-listed companies had to get a score on CSR. And that concept and many of the innovative concepts have come from Europe. And so focus on sustainability as part of environmental social governance was the first part to come over. Are you energy efficient? Are you a good corporate citizen with your water? Are you polluting? Are you you know using renewables? What are you doing in terms of being sustainable or environmentally sensitive? That was the origins. And now it has really changed to be much more fulsome. And our new and current term we are using is environmental social governance, which is three key pillars. It's changed quite a bit over time. So I would say, four years ago, five years ago, they thought it was a European thing, a fad, maybe not gonna take hold. What has changed? And there are some very specific factual reference points that caused the change, and they happened in 2017. In 2017, ExxonMobil had a 67% withhold. The previous year was 38 on reporting on climate change carbon footprint. All of a sudden, in 2017, it flipped over to a significant majority. 62% of shareholders said, Exxon, we really want you to uh, be very transparent and tell us what you're doing uh, in the areas of, of the environment and climate. And that same year, you had one of the biggest index funds, I think perhaps the second or third biggest State Street Global Advisors in 2017 did a withhold vote, a negative vote on 400 companies in their index who did not have gender diversity, were lacking gender diversity at all on their board. And that had never happened. That was a big wake up call. Um, And I think when you look last year, 2019, we had the Business Roundtable have a, a document that everybody in the Business Roundtable signed, stating that their Broader in how they think companies should look at stakeholders. It was not, historically, America was shareholder-centric, not stakeholder-centric. And the Business Roundtable came out with something, memorandum signed by everybody, uh, visibly by Jamie Dimon, who was the spokesman, saying that American companies now believe in a broader definition of stakeholder capitalism. Stakeholders being your shareholders, your employees, your community, your customers.
0: So you've sat on the board of Schneider Electric and Home Depot Supply and currently serve on Wynn Resorts. What are the biggest issues for boards today? So,
1: you know, when you look at ESG, since that's our topic, It means different things in different industries in terms of where your deepest focus is. For example, for Schneider Electric, which is about a 30 billion euro global energy management company. Think of in America, Honeywell, those are the kind of peer companies. Uh, In Europe, it would be Siemens. Um, So here, if you're in the energy management business, obviously the environment, uh, how you are looking at getting to carbon neutral, Uh, What are the programs and processes you do where energy is very important because they're a process control industrial automation company selling to electric utilities, selling to oil and gas, uh, large manufacturing companies. So you pick something that is related to your industry. So if an oil and gas company was implementing ESG, they'd be very concerned about carbon footprint, use of water for fracking, those things are directly relevant to their industry. Your carbon footprint if you're a retailer is not as important than as a chemical company or oil and gas company. So you pick the things that have the most relationship and relevance to your industry. So at Home Depot supply, big workforce, 35,000 people and self-insured one of the big parts of our ESG focus besides diversity and inclusion and all of the s for social things around our workforce uh, was wellness because people are standing on their feet they have to lift stuff heavy stuff off the shelves so wellness was a very important and, and directly relevant topic now at Win Resorts which I joined as part of the sort of cultural refresh post the hashtag Me Too Steve Wynn debacle, uh, you know, the focus on S is really important there. You know, h- how are you making your female employees feel safe? Do you have a culture of inclusion and diversity and equal pay? You know, the investigation into the alleged improper acts, what was determined was this endemic through the company or was it isolated? So the S part there was especially important and we, on the G part, refreshed and went to an 80% brand new board. So those things that were related to the industry is the big takeaway.
0: And obviously in Volvo cars, there must be a a huge amount of conversation about electric vehicles.
1: It's a great point. There is. So uh, and our pledge, to be carbon neutral. We're stopping the manufacture of diesels. We're committed to electric. And look the whole way through the supply chain. We're offering alternatives to leather. Uh, We're making sure there's no slave labor. Because for electric, one of the big things that people don't think about is you need a battery. You need cadmium that's mined most frequently in Africa. And there's issues with mining cadmium that you want to make sure there's no child labor so you pick the things that are very relevant to your industry and then of course depending on your company it's very important for your brand you know volvo has always been a very progressive scandinavian brand and so esg the entire gambit of um, environmental sustainability supply chain electric carbon neutral those are foundational to our brand. We see now putting parts of the CEO and leadership team compensation tied to ESG.
0: That is uh, something that we hear a lot about. How did that go? Uh, Who initiated that conversation with the CEO?
1: Schneider, it's been there actually for a couple of years. I'm guessing, but order of magnitude, six or seven years. So it's it's a long-standing commitment. And uh, at, at Volvo, it's new that we're putting it in. And so typically, these things are done uh, on the compensation committee, but something like this, you know, in in these boards and most others, you know, and and to varying degrees, we see a really thorough uh, briefing on ESG, at least annually with, you know, updates quarterly in the board meetings. So... um, Those are the windows when the board would be consulted and solicited their view, should ESG be part of the compensation for our CEO.
0: Does the board get involved in setting the sustainability targets that the CEO needs to meet? That would be overstep,
1: not oversight. It is the role of management to propose, and it is the role of the board to oversee and review. So if the management came back with goals, We would say, well, what are the peers doing? Uh, How do we compare to others? How would the external set of stakeholders, our shareholders, our employees, community, customers, how would they view this? And the governance watchdogs, institutional shareholders, services, and Glass-Lewis. So the board might push back and say, give us the context and the framework as related to competitors and peer companies that we would be
0: looked at next to. Now, many of the boards you're on or have been on are are in the US, but the businesses, of course, operate globally. And you're also on the board of Volvo, a European company with Chinese ownership. How do you see ESG issues changing or evolving in different geographies?
1: So I think that what you see is the most innovation around a lot of ESG, not all of it, because Europe is not perfect in everything. They are a laggard on the G part many times although you would think they're a leader. So many of the trends come out of Europe, so it would be natural that a French company in the energy management business you know, would be an early adopter, and it's core to the company's belief and culture. Same thing at Volvo, being Swedish. Now, what's interesting is how committed our Chinese owners are and how they're taking these things back to China. And people in China are very interested, particularly in environmental, because you have a lot of use of soft coal and a lot of pollution uh, in mainland China. So people are, are conscientious and concerned and interested on electric vehicles. And we actually see the Chinese government doing subsidies and really pushing hard to get adoption of electric vehicles.
0: I want to probe your point about um, Europe lagging in the G part a little bit more. Yes, it's very interesting because here in the U.S., and me for sure,
1: for the longest time, I thought all of the best practices come out of Europe. Look at them. They were the first to say, uh, we need 40% women mandates on boards out of Scandinavia. And then that went across Europe, where it being 40% in many countries down to 30. And then Europe came out with Corporate Social Responsibility, CSR, which is the forerunner to ESG. Europe is big proponent and adopters of many climate measures, which are not so prevalent in the U.S. But on the governance, they have one good thing, term limits, and not so good for the shareholders on others. I was absolutely flabbergasted to find out from Professor Shiva, over at Columbia's Graduate School of Business, I've been chatting with him on ESG, that in fact, they have very bad programs in place when it comes to the shareholders. They have big block holders on up to 30% of their companies that are either families or trusts or the country. And in fact, they have very special voting protections that make the shareholder Unable to have her or his voice heard. So, for example, they have pyramid ownership schemes, uh, they have loyalty shares, dual class, and all kinds of by country, very favorable legal protections for blockholders. In America, we have blockholders, mm, most they would typically have is 10%, and it wouldn't be a family or a trust or the country it would be the index funds, State Street Global Advisors, uh, Vanguard, Blackstone. And what happens is if an activist goes after an underperforming stock for the shareholders and for themselves, in America, the big index funds, if it's a meritorious point that the stock really is underperforming, they'll support the big index funds. So you'll get that 10% supporting uh, you know, an activist action to refresh the board, break the company up, make them more fiscally responsible, whatever it might be. In Europe, it's not so. You can look at the Axa Nobel case, which is shocking, where Elliot, the activist, uh, you know, couldn't get a hearing. So in fact, Europe, not so shareholder friendly.
0: <laughs> and in that case, in the Netherlands, they have this um, specific uh, device called the poison pill, the sticking. I think you're, and, and are you speaking of particularly of the, France and Germany, or you're seeing that widespread across Europe?
1: Widespread across Europe, Germany, very prevalent, where you'll get a significant amount of companies of a billion dollar in market cap with block holders of 25 to 30%. And that is simply not the case in the US. And they have many more protections for the blockholders who to have unbalanced power offsetting the voice of the shareholder. So it's really not shareholder friendly
0: in Europe compared to the U.S. On the topic of shareholder activists, um, we've seen them becoming increasingly active in Europe in in recent years after honing their (laughs) strategies in the U.S. Jeff Ubin, former CEO of Value Act, has recently just created his own sustainability-focused fund. Do you think more activists will use ESG? Absolutely, the activists are going to use ESG. It will be the Trojan horse
1: into the boardroom. So, you know, a couple of uh, years ago, uh, they might have focused on operational inefficiency. They would always focus on board entrenchment where you have, you know, the majority of the board with tenure above 15 years. Those kinds of governance issues will still be used. Gender diversity on the board, ethnic diversity, they'll use all of that. But ESG will be the biggest focus, I believe, uh, for activists uh, this coming year. And I think it's worth noting, if you go back to the implosion and downturn of 08, there were about 85 to 90 activist proxy actions a year had been the historic average for the previous decade before 08. But in 09, it went up by 50% and now has gone back down to the same approximate 90. So I think that board members and directors listening should expect, again, a 50% increase, I think, in 21 and late 20 in activism. Significant increase, I would expect. They've got big war chests. They're waiting. They're working on their thesis. And I think uh, if you don't have a good ESG story and you're in the bottom half of your peers, I think you better get your ESG story figured out.
0: <laughs> what, what aspects of ESG do you think they'd focus on? Are you all one gender or do you have 30%
1: gender diversity? Because if you don't have 30%, you're going to be, at, uh, you know, that'll be a target. Uh, if you have no ethnic diversity, that might be a target. Um, if you uh, have uh, people, st- you know, very long time on the board, they will find something
0: I think that's great. I mean, we often tell our, um, tell our clients to think like an activist and nobody knows them better than themselves. And where would you attack yourself if you could turn the lens on yourself?
1: It, it's very interesting. Years ago, Andy Grove, uh, founder of Intel did that. Uh, he had a, a, an underperforming major division and product line for a long time. If I remember correctly, it was in, in the memory business, the commodity DRAM memory. Anyhow, he was meeting with, you know, his CLO and uh, division presidents, and uh, they were talking about this, and he said, well, we should look at ourselves like an activist. Uh, what would they come after? And the answer was this underperforming division. He said, well, then let's get out of this business.
0: Let's not keep feeding a loser. <laughs> and did they? They did. There you go. So here's a bit of a touchy topic. In this extremely volatile business environment with COVID kind of upending uh, the business landscape, where the pressure and time required from board members is increasing. Can board members reasonably carry out their fiduciary duties by sitting on multiple public company boards? They can. And in fact, their effectiveness, I would posit, is greatly
1: enhanced, at least mine is, because each board, maybe there's 10 or 12 people. I get to be with 10 or 11 really smart people and learn from them and from the boards they're on. So I'm getting the benefit of all these great practices, how they've solved problems, what insights they found, what trends they're seeing, and you know, there's a multiplying effect. And then you can mentor uh, your CEO and leadership team and your board colleagues about what you're seeing and finding. You're much more valuable when you have more information. And the more boards you serve on, the more information you're able to accumulate. So I think it's valuable. The key thing is, do you have uh, the amount of time required to really prepare? Do you do your homework really diligently? Not just the board book, but we, other information from your competitors and peer set, the outside market research reports from Gartner, IDC, Forrester? Uh, are you looking at the macro trend reports from Accenture, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, uh, at the Futurist, whether it's Mary Meeker or Peter Diamandis at Singularity? What are you doing to make sure you're really current and that you're reading the material the management has given you and then your own homework to be you know valuable and uh, You know, I think that most board members are pretty diligent and you have quarterly meetings You have lots of time in between with your various committee meetings uh, to stay up-to-date and the ISS institutional Shareholder services and glass Lewis um, recommendations is five boards Above five, you're overboarded. You graciously, Amelia, shared the write-up from the UK and Ireland, and it was a little confusing, but when I read it through a couple of times, uh, they are in line for uh, an independent director at five with the US, ISS, and Glass-Lewis. They have different requirements and recommendations if you are a chairman, chairwoman on a UK board, and that role is very different in the UK in Ireland, it's more like an American executive chair than a non-executive U.S. chair. And in the U.S., if you're an executive chair, you're called executive
0: chair uh, to differentiate. Well, that's another topic that I think uh, where we differ in in Europe versus the U.S., right? I think um, in Europe, it's really frowned upon to have the CEO and the chairman uh, be the same person. Um, whereas it seems like there's a little bit more tolerance for that in the in the U.S.
1: Not, not as different as I would have thought. I thought that also uh, we did the research for Schneider when we made our CEO, Jean-Pascal Triquard, chair, because we thought, oh, my gosh, we're, we're going against the trend. Only 20 or 30 percent are going to have the CEO and chair combined. It was 45 In the U.S., it's about 55 and it swings. So it's not that big a difference. What the big difference is, back on the um, bad governance, good governance models, um, I'm now going to offend all of the German listeners, that a co-determined board where you have a supervisory board and an executive board is really not good governance because it it basically guts the supervisory board as all the operating this review and decision is done at the executive board level. And then the um, supervisory board is more of a kind of a ratification
0: frequently. So it's interesting, isn't it, across Europe, how even within Europe, there are different approaches.
1: Well, the UK, I think, is an outlier. Um, You know, now I'm going to offend all your uh, British listeners. I think the UK goes way overboard on the number of board meetings. It's 10 meetings a year very frequently. I think that's really uh, disruptive to a leadership team to have to prepare for 10 board meetings. You know, that's what you do when you have a company in trouble in the US, like during COVID, uh, or if you're a startup company, a venture capital backed company, you know, they, they, you know, are are working with very um, early stage businesses where uh, CEOs are often first time and it's a big leap for them. So you see uh, until the company matures and breaks through 50, 60 million in revenue that you might be having monthly board meetings. Public boards in America are on average uh, once a quarter, five, maybe six is already a lot Um, in Europe. Uh, in Scandinavia and mainland Europe, it's normally five, sometimes six. The UK is a crazy outlier in my mind.
0: So Betsy, you've literally written the book on boards in your bestselling book, Be Board Ready. What advice would you give CEOs, board members and aspiring board members in today's fast and complex changing world?
1: So when you have a macro trend like this, jump on it. Don't be a laggard, uh, be a leader, Uh, And even if you don't get it right, there's a lot you can do today. For example, you, every company that you would serve on as a director has great human resources policies. Uh, And and you just need to articulate them and communicate them and get credit. Of course, you have equal pay uh, gender policies. Of course, you have diversity and inclusion. Of course, you would have anti harassment. Of course, you would have safe workplace wellness. Um, energy uh, efficient buildings, Uh, you'd be a good corporate citizen and not be polluting, Uh, your supply chain would not be using child labor, you would have data protection and privacy, you would have data security oversight. All of these things you're doing, it's just a matter of capture them communicate them pick a framework any framework just start and you'll get credit for it and do it in plain common speak in your proxy so
0: that's what i would recommend today for for ceos and boards fantastic betsy thanks so much for joining us today it's been a privilege my pleasure i enjoyed it all thank you